Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're concluding our series, Faith and What We Hope For. So turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Race of a Lifetime. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you like the Olympics? I mean, some do and some don't. Well, I do on occasion, especially around those long-distance races where the drama can drag out, and I also like those feats of human strength. I wonder how many of us know that Paul frequently compares the Christian life to a great athletic contest. You know, for instance, listen to how he compares the Christian life both to a foot race and then to a boxing match. It's found in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, but that's not the only time that Paul speaks that way. In Galatians 5, 7, he says to the Galatians, you are running well, who hindered you? Philippians 2, 16, he tells them to hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, he says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain. You know, for Paul, the Christian life can be compared to a, you know, to a great athletic contest. Now, from that image, I see a number of things. There's a medal awarded to the winner. That's why everyone competes. And they want to stand on the podium and receive a great honor. And that's the picture of your faith. The end game is to stand before Christ and receive an eternal reward. Now, you can't get there unless you win. So just like an athlete, you go into training. You don't hang out at the burger bar and eat nachos for hours and watch TV on the couch. In the same way, there are some activities that may be fine for others, but as a Christian who wants to receive the prize, there are things that you do and things that you avoid. As Paul says, you don't want to preach to others and to be disqualified. You know, for my taste, the really exciting track event is, is not the 100-meter dash. It's over way too quickly. I love the 10,000-meter marathon. You know, I remember one year, the gold and the silver went to two men from Ethiopia. After having run for more than nine kilometers, the last section, about a lap and a half, was a clear sprint. That's where a lot of athletes who had kept up with the two Ethiopians until then, but, but somewhere deep within, these two had the incredible ability to just dig down, and when everyone else was completely exhausted, those two men broke out with lightning speed. I mean, where did that come from? And that's the image the writer of the Hebrews has for the Christian life. He wants us to know that it's a long-distance race. Now, how do I know that's what he's thinking about? Well, look at the the last phrase in verse 1. He says, let us run with endurance. The Greek word for endurance is the word hupomone. 
And it means a steady determination to keep going. And it means continuing on when everything in you is screaming to stop. When the pain is almost unbearable, it's then that you push your body to heights that separate you from the pack. You know, the writer of the Hebrews says that's the Christian life. It requires sustained effort and it requires a determination to win. You know, I suspect there are a lot of Christians who know how to be a sprinter. You know, the church has always had short-distance sprinters who, after a brief race, simply stop running. And that was the problem being addressed in the book of Hebrews. You know, Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who had begun to suffer persecution for their faith, and thus many of them were thinking of abandoning their faith and returning to Judaism because at that time, Jews were not being persecuted, but Christians were. In fact, these people might have reasoned, you know, what's wrong with returning to Judaism? And so Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is supreme and he alone deserves our loyalty, devotion, and faith. And so the message here is simply this. I know you feel like you've hit the wall in your run for Christ and you feel too exhausted to go on, but don't you stop running until you've won the prize. And in order to make that point, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 goes back to the great men and women who have won the race of life, the race of faith. Speaks of Abel and Enoch and Noah, Sarah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. And after considering their adventure, the race they had run, he says he could have written more about those who escaped the edge of the sword and put foreign armies to flight. But then he speaks about those who were tortured and refused to accept release if that meant they renounced their faith. He speaks of those who were mocked and those who were flogged and those killed with the sword. He says that many of them were destitute. And then he adds, the world was not worthy of them. And then the writer of Hebrews ends with these words, Hebrews eleven thirty nine to 40. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, let me be clear about what this text is talking about. Before each of us, there is a great prize. In fact, Jesus regularly motivated his followers by directly appealing to a prize, a reward that lay before them if they ran well. Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, but sometimes Jesus spoke about the possibility that we might lose our reward. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. At other times, he told them to count on their reward. Mark 9, 41 says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And amazingly, sometimes Jesus even specified exactly what kind of reward he was talking about. Luke 19, 17 says, And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. 
You know, by my count, Jesus mentions rewards in general 16 times, and that's not counting his specific promises of rewards, things like, you know, cities and houses and lands and a great family and great wealth and many more things promised in the life to come. In short, Jesus, and then Paul after him, saw that we were running for a podium that was so much greater than the Olympics. And so the drama and the stakes were so much higher than the two weeks of world attention. It was John Piper who said that he wanted to stand on the tallest building in New York City and he wanted to cry out, hedonistic America, you are not nearly hedonistic enough. You have chosen short-term joys like sex and drugs, entertainment and self-fulfillment when the ultimate joy of knowing God stood before you and you would not have it. Well, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If worldly athletes sacrifice and train and run and agonize to receive a perishable prize, then how much more do Christians sacrifice and train and run and agonize for an imperishable one? So in this last of this one-week New Year's series, let me explain how to win. First, you need home team advantage. I mean, most of us know that in sports, the, the home team advantage is considerable. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let's understand the term witness. You know, just a moment's reflection will help you see how differently we think of this term in our language than how it's used in the book of Hebrews. You know, we might speak about going to a hockey game and witnessing that, but we also speak about a witness in court. I mean, perhaps you've seen a traffic accident and you're called upon to testify or to witness what you've seen. But in the Greek, the word for witness is marturion. From that, we get our English word martyr. Now, at the time of the writing of the New Testament, they never used witness as a martyr. But after seeing countless people die in Christ, Christians began to call them martyrs or witnesses because these people bore witness that one can joyfully lose all things for the sake of Christ. Their testimony, their witness emboldened others to think it was possible for them. Let me give an example from athletics. It was May 6, 1954 in Oxford, England, that Roger Bannister did what many thought was impossible. He ran the one mile in three minutes, 59.4 seconds. In short, he had done something stunning, impossible. He had broken the four-minute mile. And once Bannister did that, just 46 days later, John Landy of Australia did it as well. In other words, when someone testifies and witnesses that it can be done, others do so as well. This year, God has blessed the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with both the increased opportunity and provision to teach the Bible. It's undeniable that His helping hand has been at work as we reflect on everything He has allowed Back to the Bible Canada to accomplish on His behalf. Now we look forward to all He has in store for 2023. This calendar year end, Back to the Bible Canada has a goal to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will help position the ministry to carry out all the plans God has crafted for His glory. Now, each of us has the privilege to participate in sharing the gospel through the trustworthy teaching of His Word. Your partnership plays a crucial role in ensuring the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and we are beyond grateful for it. 
To offer a gift toward our year-end goal, just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. There have been a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And the way in which they ran their race bears witness as to how we might run our own race. You might be facing overwhelming obstacles and you might say, I'll never make it. But they are saying, don't give up. Don't be afraid. Don't yield to temptation. If you sin, don't fail to get humble and repent. But above all, never, never, never stop running until you stand on the podium before Christ and receive a reward that will never pass away. It's called home team advantage. And all those witnesses are spurring you on. Here's the problem. Some of us have been listening to other witnesses. Rather than feeding our lives on the heroes of faith, we've fed our lives on the heroes of hockey or the heroes of politics or the heroes of entertainment or of finance or of education. I mean, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with some of this, but so many Christians are familiar with the latest Hollywood actors and actresses and don't know the people of the Bible or the great men and women of faith throughout history. And hence, we've lost home court advantage. If you want to win the race, you'll need to get home court advantage and surround yourself with a great cloud of witnesses. Breathe in the biblical stories. Know all about Abel and Enoch and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Let their lives of faith bear witness that you're not the first person to grow weary. You're not the first person to stumble. You're not the first person to be intimidated or or the first person to doubt. But you can go on and you can win the prize. Second, stay in shape. Hebrews 12 tells us to to lose weight, that is, to throw off the weight. The word weight comes from the Greek onkos, which means mass or weight or heaviness or bodily fat or even fullness. How many of you have ever seen an overweight curler? Well, I think you probably have. But how about an overweight marathoner? Never. In order to run, you have to get rid of weight. Sometimes weight has nothing to do with with sin, but there are things that divert our attention from the faith. For the people addressed in the book of Hebrews, the weight might have been their their fascination with a Judaistic temple ritual, something that would soon be destroyed. For us, it's often something that simply diverts us from following Christ. But the writer of Hebrews also speaks of the, the weight of sin, that is, entanglement. It simply clings to us and we can't shed it. There are some of you who are listening who might say, I can't win the race because I can't lose my sin. It's like excess weight that I can't lose it. It clings. It's just always there. And to that, the writer of Hebrews says that we're going to have to lay it aside. Let me give you a little hint about our sin. The reason why we sin is because we love it so. And we need to come to God and to tell him that the very thing that he hates is the thing we love. And we're broken and ashamed and helpless against this love of darkness. And then go to him and say, God, change my heart. Make me love what you love and to hate what you hate. I want to lay down what I have loved and pick up what you love. Third, keep your eyes fixed. Our passage says, looking to Jesus. You know, most of us know that some athletes look, look sideways at key points to find out how the competition is doing rather than looking straight ahead. And if you're going to win, you have to keep your eyes fixed straight on the track ahead of you. You know, for us, that's Jesus. 
You know, it's true that there are witnesses who remind us of faithfulness, but Jesus, he's in a class by himself. And there are two reasons for that. First, he is the author and founder of our faith. You know, that word can also be translated as leader, as champion, as forerunner, even as example. You know, all of those words may mean something slightly different, so we're left to wonder which one of those meanings the writer of Hebrews wanted to communicate to us. And one of the basic rules in interpreting the Bible says that in order to understand a given word that might be vague, we'll do well to look at the immediate context. Notice that Jesus is also called the perfecter of our faith, so think about it. We know that the great heroes of faith in the past had faith. You know, their faith record, however, was not unblemished. Abraham succumbed to fear a number of times. David committed adultery and even murder. Moses struck the rock twice and was not allowed to enter the promised land. He viewed it from Mount Nebo and he died at a distance. But Jesus' faith was perfected. No blemishes, no sins, no false paths, no bad examples. I mean, put the two together. Jesus then is the great champion of faith, the greatest hero of all heroes, whose walk of faith is the only one whom we can emulate without any wavering. But how do we do that? Well, how did he run the the perfect race? I know some of you will say, well, he was the son of God, and and therefore he, he had a decided advantage over me. Well, yeah, you're right. He was the son of God. But remember, Philippians 2 says that he never used his deity to his advantage. He laid it aside, and as the the writer of Hebrews will tell us, he learned obedience by what he suffered. He lived his life in complete and total reliance on the Father. So he has become not only our perfect Savior, but he's also our perfect example. You know, so then, I ask again, how do we run the perfect race? And I think the answer is right here. It says, for the joy set before him. So think of Jesus as the perfect man who never lost sight of the goal. One day he would be seated in the place of honor, having become our perfect Savior. He knew that his destiny was to be the second Adam, the perfect Redeemer, to whom would be all honor and glory for all eternity. And there was never a moment when he ever forgot that. The devil came to him and offered him all the kingdoms of the world, and he simply said no. If I take your offer, I can't have the glory of being the perfect redeemer. I place my hope in that one place. And then came the agony of the cross. The cross was the lowest form of punishment in the Roman world. It was such a scandal that Rome decreed that no Roman citizen would ever be allowed to be crucified. It was far too degrading and humiliating and destroying of all vestige of human decency. The cross was left for people who were the worst of scoundrels, the bottom dwellers of human society. To be crucified would be to send untold shame, not only on the victim, but on their family and their clan and on their nation. And our text says that Jesus despised that shame. The term despise can be translated as scorned. It means to treat someone or something as if it had little value. An example might be that if you dropped a $100 bill, you'd stoop to pick it up. But who'd stoop to pick up a nickel? You'd scorn to pick it up. It means nothing. And that's how Jesus treated the shame of the cross. He scorned it. He despised it. He treated it as a nothing. How do you do that? The answer, 
through the eye of faith, he compared the weight of eternal glory, being the perfect Savior with the shame of the cross, and he found it was no contest. That's what we need to do. When tempted to give up, when tempted to become self-indulgent and not giving ourselves to any ministry, when tempted to just hang out at the periphery of, of life because the life of discipleship is too hard, well, get your eyes fixed on Jesus and do what he did. You know, a number of years ago, I counseled a woman who had committed adultery. She told me that she was going to leave her husband, and I protested that her husband was willing to forgive and to try to work it out. She told me about her grandmother, who had gone through a divorce and a remarriage at that time. These things were unacceptable, and she had found her way back to church in acceptability. And so she said, I'm following my grandma's example. But there are some that do the same thing today. You know, they reason, I mean, no one's perfect. I mean, even David committed adultery and he's okay. In other words, they've got the wrong lessons and they've fixed their eyes on the wrong thing. They need to fix their eyes on Jesus. If you want your life to take on the race of a lifetime, here's what you need to do. You need to get home court advantage. You need to stay in shape and you need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And finally, remember what it's all about. One day, you're going to stand on the precipice of eternity. And for me, that time keeps looking closer all the time. And then we will stand before Jesus. And because I know that, and you know that, let's commit to something in the new year. Let's run the race of a lifetime. Let's dig down deep. And no matter how hard or how long, we will run with endurance the race that is set before us. Don't stop being faithful to church. Remember to pray and read your Bible. Use your spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ and have faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone. Keep your eyes on him who alone set the perfect example. John, let me ask you a personal question. As we enter into a new year, what is the things that you're thinking about? You know, this might sound uh, a little bit uh, morose. <laughs> I've never gone into a new year without thinking, perhaps this is the year that Christ will call me home. So, um, you know, uh, thoughts of my own death uh, always are there, and it's not, it's not a morbid thought at all. But, I, you know, for me, it's a thought that says, I know that the, uh, the race that I'm running leads to a destination. I will see Christ face to face one day and I'll be um, <laughs> brought into his marvelous court. So I think about that, Ben. I really do. I also think about being faithful to the Lord. If he gives me the entire year, how do I be faithful to him here? That, that weighs on me too. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We're coming to the end of your opportunity to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2023 Israel Experience from April 16th to the 24th. The time is drawing close and we're nearing capacity. So if you've been thinking about joining us for the Israel Experience 2023 with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Lathagain's Phil Calloway, special musical guest Amanda Stott, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, now's the time. We're also offering an optional Jordan extension, April 24th to the 29th. So seize the day and join us in the Holy Land. Numbers are limited, so register soon. 
Please note that all costs associated with this event are paid for by the participants. No ministry funds are used. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.